Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk on Friday. Doug Maurice, Stephen Means, and Nathan Baird along shortly. Another rapid fire for you guys. Reported a little bit early, just doing this intro because I thought, ah, maybe something will happen in between recording and getting it out to you here on Friday. Not that much happened. Uh, happened. Cormonte Hamilton, no longer with the team. Guys move on down to 91 on the scholarship chart. So we keep that updated at cleveland.com if you want to check that out. And uh, let's get to rapid fire. Great questions, as always, from our tech subscribers, 614-350-3315. Into our answers right now on Buckeye Talk. All right, let's get down to rapid fire. Uh, Nathan just swore 11 times in 10 seconds because he got a new computer and there's not an adapter. So his headphones aren't working today. So he's going to sound slightly different, but it's fine. We can hear him. It's all good. Um, but it was, it was the most, Nathan, I think I've ever heard you swear in a 30 second period. Yeah. Just get me going on the, the, the great, just uh, corporate fraud that is, and uh, that is the Apple corporation. Just, just get me going. That'll be Buckeye talk. That'll be Buckeye Talk Blue. That'll be a subscriber-only podcast that we do. It's just me swearing about Steve Jobs for hours on end. I think it's funny how both of you have like a My Last Ride podcast now, a subject that you would just go on a rant about when you know you're not coming back, you're going off into the sunset. And I'm only 27, so like I'm not even thinking about that yet. But it's good to see that you both have a stance that you're willing to take when you know you don't have to do any of these anymore. Again, Buckeye Talk available on Apple Podcasts. Okay, so let's go to uh, the first question today. Uh, Again, our loyal tech subscriber, 614-350-3315. I thought this was really interesting. I think it's good for all of us because we've all covered college football and college basketball. We see your basketball questions. I'm saving them. We're going to be doing a basketball podcast, Stephen and I, early next week. So we'll save some of those for here. This is the only basketball-related question on this podcast, but it's also football related from the, it's, I love questions like this that cross over things from the five, six, seven, who had the steeper learning curve becoming a head coach at Ohio state, Chris Holtman or Ryan day day has more success, big 10 championships, playoff appearances, but also had to learn to be a head coach. Holtman had head coach experience, but struggled to build his roster and he hasn't won anything to hang a banner for who will have the greater success? Seems like both may be about to really hit their stride. So why I think this is such an interesting question, Stephen, is Holtman had been a head coach. Day had not. But Day had been in the NFL. Holtman had never been at a level as high as Ohio State. 
And I almost think there's might be something interesting to the idea of when your first time being a head coach is at the level of Ohio state, you don't know anything else when in terms of running the show. So it almost in a weird way might be an easier adaptation where Chris Holtman had success at Butler and knew how to win there. And then you have to come to a new place and well, some of this translates, but some of it doesn't translate. Well, this worked there. Will it work here? How much do I have to change? Where Ryan Day is just doing everything for the first time. So that's not my answer. Who do you think had the steeper learning curve? Who had more to adjust to? Who had more distance to travel to get his feet under him as a head coach at Ohio State? I'm leaning Chris Holtman, and it's solely based off the fact that Ryan Day took over a Ferrari. And Chris Holtman took over a Ford F-150 that was out of gas. You know, so just from if you take away all the extra elements, it's like Ohio State's already a blue blood and it's running the best way it could possibly be ran right now when he takes over. And so it was kind of I don't want to say it was easy, but it was it doesn't get any easier than what Ryan Day took over. While Ohio State the year before Holtman got here was 17 and 15 that model was kind of on his last leg and he kind of had to rejolt the program a little bit while also not being a blue blood. So when you look at it from that standpoint, it's like, this is really Ryan day's first summer of like alert, any type of a learning curve because he lost two games and one of them was to Michigan. Well, Chris Holtman's worst moment is he got upset in the first round of the NCAA tournament by a 15 seed, but it's like the expectations are already not the same. And so because of that, I think you have to lean Holtman just because of the program he took over in comparison to what Ryan Day took over. Nathan, you know basketball. You covered basketball. What do you think? And and I do, I think we have to be careful, like what the, who had, well, we can have the discussion, who had the tougher job, but who had the tougher job is not exactly the same as who had the steeper learning curve, right? Because I think, Holtman had more to do to your point, Stephen. He, he did not inherit a team that was ready to win a national championship, potentially his first year running the show. Um, But I do think the learning curve aspect of it is still a very interesting part of it. Nathan, what do you think? So I actually think I would answer Ryan day. And I think it is all about the fact that he had never been a head coach before. He's, you know, Chris Holtman. Yes, I agree. He was coming into a place that had, had dipped from its highs under Thad Mata but also the expectations are not the same for Ohio state basketball as they are for Ohio state football. And Chris Holman had kind of done a version of this before when he was at Butler and he had he'd been the head coach at Gardner Webb, hadn't had like great success there came to Butler as an assistant. And then uh, Brandon Miller left after a year. I think, I think he was barely there. It was, there were some weird circumstances that pushed Chris Holtman up into being the the head coach at Butler and then led him to Ohio state eventually. And so he had like, he knew what it was like to kind of take over from someone else where things hadn't gone well and try to push it back in the right direction. So as far as just like the learning curve of getting your feet under you and establishing your program, I, I think that Ryan day had the tougher job. And I think you've seen that we're going to talk about this in some of the other questions, I think, Ryan Day's made some mistakes, I think, along the way, or if he could do things over again, might handle some things differently. And they were probably a little bit borne out because you're doing this all for the first time. There are things I go ask Urban Meyer, go ask Nick Saban, all the things that they would have done differently their first two or three years. 
compared to what they were doing when they won national championships later, I bet they would say, well, maybe I missed an opportunity there. Or they would say, well, that's just part of the process and you have to learn from that. So I, I, I would vote day just because it, it's, I know that he took over a great situation, but he was also a first time head coach taking over a great situation. And while that team wasn't expected to win a national championship at the start of that year, we saw clearly what was available to him, not just that year, but even in that second year, and um, and then throw it throw 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 COVID on top of that, right? Like trying to trying to win a national championship during COVID. I know that it wiped out the season for Chris Holtman and all that, but I the, being only the second year and having that come up with the potential of that team is another complication that Ryan Day made made his learning curve even tougher. Ryan Day also did get to work under and learn from the guy he took over for who had mm-hmm. been very successful. So he had never done it, but he had a firsthand look. It's not like he was head coach and waiting. He didn't know for sure, whatever, but I do wonder. And I, I've, I thought this when it happened, there was when Chris Holtman got hired, my question, primary question about it was, will he be able to recruit recruit at the Ohio state level, not the Butler level, you can't just bring the Butler plan to Ohio State and say, no, we're just going to do it the Butler way because Ohio State standards should be higher than that, regardless of all the success Butler's had. But Butler, in his third and last year at Butler, Butler finished second in the Big East. Villanova finished first in the Big East that year and was the overall number one seed in the NCAA tournament. This guy's not coming you know, from the whatever, I don't know the name of the conference. He was coming from a place where they were playing very high-level basketball. Steven, how big of a difference do you think it is being the head basketball coach at Ohio State compared to Butler? And do you think there was some part of that transition that, yes, Chris Holtman had head coach experience, but were some things difficult about that because Maybe there were some things he thought that would translate that didn't quite translate. And it's maybe it's mostly recruiting, but how different is Butler at Ohio state? Am I making, am I overestimating the gap there? No, it's a gap. It's not. I don't know if it's a wide enough gap to where he wasn't going to be able to make the transition, but it, it's a gap. Cause it's still one's a power five, which for what that means in college basketball, uh, one's a power five and what's not, but Butler's a pretty high you know, pretty highly regarded mid-major school, given to the fact that they've been to two national championship games. Um, I think less about the recruiting and it's more about just like perception because we all know Ohio State basketball only matters at a certain time of year for Ohio State fans. But when it matters, it matters. And I do think there is something to win, especially when you're not getting the job done. And I think the last two years have, well, three years, because last year they didn't get, two years ago they didn't get a chance to play because of COVID. Not getting out of the first round, he's starting to, you start feeling some of that heat because Ohio state fans can get a little rowdy when you're not getting the job done. It's never going to be to the level of football, but you do feel it a little bit when you're supposed to do something and you're supposed to take a step and you don't take that step. So I think that more just how people pay attention to it and then how people respond to things when you have success and when you have failure, I think is more of where his learning curve was as a head coach at Ohio state, which for Ryan day, I mean, I, how much stock do we want to put in the fact that he was the acting head coach for three games at a very messy time in 2018, but then also no, he wasn't the head coach, but he was here for two years. So he kind of understood how, you know, fans and the media worked it at this job. Even if he wasn't the guy completely in charge, he had an idea. Do you think that heat, Nathan, 
that that is something that Ryan Day at least was exposed to the Ohio State heat level. Although he spent a lot of last year saying like, oh, we're going to lose. Someday we're going to lose a game. And man, you can't lose a game here. Where Holtman didn't know anything about the Ohio State heat level. And I don't know much about, Nathan, you're probably the most qualified to talk about the Butler heat level. Is Butler a lovable underdog that, you know what? They're always pretty good and that's enough. And if they're really, really good, that's great. But there's not as much pressure there. Or is there a huge expectation level at Butler that Chris Holtman would have felt a lot of pressure there? There's not a a huge expectation level of Butler. I think they know now what is possible for that program. And especially now that they're in the conference that they're in and, uh, and, and what is achievable there generally. I don't think they expect to be playing for national championships. Certainly not in back-to-back years. Still just one of the great like achievements that I've seen in coaching in my lifetime probably was what, um, what Brad Stevens did getting them to back-to-back national championship games. But I, I think Holman did understand the heat though, because I remember when he took the Ohio state job, Greg Doyle from the Indy star, you know, getting a hold of him and, you know, kind of asking him like, why, why are you leaving Butler? For, you know, this, you know, you, you've seen what can be achieved at Butler. Why would you leave Butler for a place like Ohio state that's on the dip and, and Holman's response being like, well, it's Ohio state. Like he recognized that while, from a while basketball gets overshadowed here so much by football, he knows what has also been achieved in football or in basketball here over the past 20, 25 years and what that Mata did at his peaks and what can happen at Ohio state when it's right. And what is what the right combination of coach and talent could achieve. So I think he does understand the heat I, I i think he maybe hasn't handled it that well sometimes but i don't know that that's like was a naivete i think some of that could just be uh the the personality he has there were some good recruiting classes at butler when holtman was there for his three years as a head coach but you go back and look at it you know they they were getting some guys who were in the hundreds not a top hundred player but ranked in the hundreds they have multiple guys like that. But at Ohio State, Stephen, you, you've got to get some top 50 guys. So that was my big question. Ryan Day, and again, it's hard. Everybody in life, until you do a thing for the first time, you haven't done it. And you have to do a thing for the first time at some point. So I don't want to overstate this. But Ryan Day had recruited to the Ohio State level as an assistant for a couple of years before he became the head coach. And I think we all see he was a pretty good recruiter and was involved with some big-time guys, not just quarterbacks. Chris Holtman, you need to get some top 50 guys. You have to. Every now and then, you're not demanding one every class. You're not demanding a five-star every class. But I think you should have a five-star on the roster almost all the time, which means you're getting a guy, a top 20 or 25 guy every third class or so. And they have some guys like that now, Stephen. But how much of a of a – learning curve was there to that because I'm sure just like Perry Eliano is going to go through as an Ohio state football assistant. Now they had really good players at Cincinnati. He recruited very good players to Cincinnati, but there were a lot of guys that he just couldn't get involved in at Cincinnati that he's now going to be expected to land at Ohio state. I'm sure there were guys at Butler that Holtman just couldn't get involved with. And then you had to come to Ohio state. And now you're not just involved. You have to land some of those guys. How big was that learning curve, do you think? And how has he handled it? I think he's handled it decently. Um, 
because he's still at a level where he can't completely handpick whoever he wants because with the five star, there's always like, oh, I'm just going to go to Duke or Kentucky or I'm, you know, and just do that. Or I'm just going to go to the G League. There are extra elements there. But I think they've done a good job of targeting guys where it's realistic until they start winning at a higher level. Um, now the question is like actually closing the deal. That's where like the challenge is at this point. It's like, you know, okay, cool. You finish second for this guy. You finish second for this guy. You finish second for this guy. But if you finish second for four or five guys in a row, well, that starts to impact your roster in a major way. And it can't just be the only guys you're finishing first for or Malachi Branham, who's you know from Columbus, Ohio, or EJ Liddell, who probably was a little bit underrated just because of you know the division he played in in Illinois. So you got to – he hasn't landed the big fish yet that makes you feel like, oh, okay, all this is possible. Um, and so that's really the only challenge that's left for him and the only learning curve he's yet to accomplish is – there is a guy, there should be a, a McDonald's on the American, all American who legitimately wants to come here. And there's no D'Angelo Russell level player yet. DJ Carton was the highest ranked guy and that didn't work out. So yeah. he's landed five top 100 guys in his time here. Two home runs, EJ Liddell and Malachi Branham. Uh, Alonzo Gaffney and DJ Carton were barely here. And then Luther Muhammad was, was fine while he was here for a little bit. It's, it's here now for Holtman. And it's one of those, Nathan, where with all this stuff, Ryan Day inherited a Ferrari and Chris Holtman inherited an F-150, as Steven said. So then how long are you in the shop until you're, you build your Ferrari? The, it feels like it. And Steven, you make sure you chime in on this too. Like it's here now with this class. There are th- this, this recruiting class that's going to be freshman next year. Five guys, four of them are top 100 guys. Bruce Thornton's number 42. Felix Okpara, number 50. Roddy Gale, number 59. Bryce Sensabaugh, number 61. Like, I do think all that's left now for the curve is the difference between Ohio State football and Ohio State basketball, which is Ohio State football is far and away the best team in its conference. And Ohio State basketball is like... One of like four or five third, every year. Third, yeah. fifth, second... So that's the only difference. Other than that, Nathan, I think we're done with differences between Ryan Day and Chris Holtman. And now that we're done with differences, Holtman is landing the best class he's ever had. And maybe now we see it. Maybe now they're trading in the truck for a little more of a sports car. Yeah, I think this is where it's the, it's the difference between the greatest learning curve and then the greatest curve to make Ohio State national championship contention right because i mean ryan day took over a team that was expecting to contend for a national championship and that wasn't the case for holman so I, I it is i know it is interesting because you, you know, on one hand you want to say like well ryan day's in a situation where the the floor is so high that really you just there's one game every year that kind of decides whether or not you're in the playoff or not and and holman has a lot more variance than that but then at the same time i think we've also seen that right now the the judgment of Chris Holtman's progress at Ohio state is coming down to one game every year, really like you're getting into the tournament. And then what do you do there? Like, do you show up or not? So it, it's a different, it's a interesting comparison to make is it's on different levels, but it kind of comes down almost to the same thing. Like, are you rising to occasion at the, on the, at the one moment where your season depends on it? I think if there is one difference at this point, it's just like, we're not going to know it till time is, you know, with Holtman, it's a lot more like, all right, once you've established your program, what does it look like? While with Ryan Day, 
there's always going to be this small part of like, all right, as you start to lose more and more of the pieces Urban Meyer put in place, what do you do? And we've seen that with the coaching staff now in the second reset of the defensive coaching staff. What happens if, you know, Mick Marotti or Mark Pantone decide to do something else with their lives? No, no, that's that's the difference here is Holtman's judgment window was four or five years the way you would normally judge a program when you're building one. While with Ryan Day, there are just things that he might not be able to do anything about till six, seven, eight years from now. Well, but we're not we're not going to be able to fully judge Ryan Day as long as Mark Pantone and Mickey Marotti are on staff. No, but it, it's it's. But we were you can't just check it off as yep, this is great in year two or three. I think you gotta see some consistency with it, is all I'm saying. I'm not waiting until year eight though. I think Ryan Day will have his program and it'll be fully his program before that long. I do think but we're also here with Holtman. Are are they pretty close to a Ferrari? Like I I I don't know. They're not Duke, they're not I get it. But like this class, can he how good is this class and do you think now this is the level that Chris Holtman and his assistants will stay on in recruiting that they're going to bring in multiple top 100 guys every year and almost be at the point where, man, if the only way we're like not taking a top 100 guy, everybody on our team is going to be a top 100 recruit, except for the odd. Hey, we really like this underrated big. Mm-hmm. Hey, there's this shooter that we just really like that isn't judged as high. But is that, do you think that's where they are now? Yeah, I don't think they can. They can't, I wouldn't buy the Ferrari yet, but I think they can start test driving them off the lot with this club. Cause you're, yes, you're losing EJ Liddell, but I mean, this is a pretty good way to replace him. And especially since Malachi Branham's coming back. Yeah. And again, but now also, I think it's fair to like, it's again, this is like, all right, here, here it is. We just had a whole mm-hmm. conversation about Ohio State underachieving to its recruiting level in football. Are they? They have a class coming in, the freshman next year, four of the five guys are going to be top 100 players. And if they don't start winning at a super high level, then they're going to be underachieving to their recruiting. So I think in conclusion, the steeper learning curve, like you had given your background and experiences and given what you were stepping into, who had more to adjust to? I actually might say, I think it's not actually, I think I would say Holtman because he had a version of it in his head, but this is different than that. And that day was able to look, be here for two years, get the Ohio state point of view and then go, I think was maybe an easier adjustment than a guy who did have head coaching experience, but not like this. So I say steeper learning, learning curve is Holtman, Nathan, steeper learning curve. Who is it? Day. Steven, Day or Holtman, you break the tie. Yeah, yeah. the tiebreaker is Day was here for two years before he got to take over the job, and that's why it's Holtman. Okay. I thought that I, I like discussions like that. We haven't, we, I don't know that, I don't know that we've had on this podcast like a direct, let's compare Ryan Day and Chris Holtman to each other. And I think that was a really smart way to do it. Learning curve was a really good phrase from the five, six, seven. Thank you for that great question. All right. Super Bowl right around the corner from the 614. Which former Buckeye not named Joe Burrow playing in the Super Bowl has the best chance to win MVP? And this person says, so I guess Sam Hubbard, Eli Apple, or Von Bell. And then we, of course, have to throw Jordan Fuller from the Rams into he's that hurt, conversation. Though. Oh, he is? When did John I'm pretty did sure Jordan he's hurt. hurt. Like middle of the season. He did? Yeah. I feel bad for him. 
He he was playing. So he he starts for the Rams though. He's hurt. He's our captain. Yeah. Do you think it is more difficult to win Super Bowl MVP while you're on the sideline hurt? Do you think hurt? Or do you think that he could be the emotional MVP of the Super Bowl? What if he gives like a well, CJ Saunders McCall. kind of speech? Yeah, Demario McCall speech. Jordan Fuller's hurt for real. I should yeah. pay more attention to that. Yep. Jordan Fuller, the Ohio State player, is hurt. I mean, I don't know why you would pay more attention to that. He's he doesn't play for any team you cover. So that is true. All right. So I guess it's just these three guys, Sam Hubbard, Eli Apple and Vaughn Bell. Uh, I, I think they are actually all actual candidates I don't know what the odds are. You know, there's props on everything. God, we just got to get the Ohio sports betting thing done. And then we can just pull it up on our phone and say, here are the betting props for the Super Bowl, but it's not on my phone because I don't have the Ohio betting app because we can't do it in Ohio yet. I think they're all reasonable. Sam Hubbard, like, took over the end of the AFC Championship. I mean, when it was like, hey, Patrick Mahomes is just deciding to put on an Irish jig 20 yards behind the line of scrimmage. Is anybody going to do anything about it? And Sam Hubbard was like, I'll do something about it. And then Von Bell makes the interception that, like, completely changes the game to play after Eli Apple had a chance to make an interception and didn't. Just because of the position they play, I don't think, like, it's impossible for Sam Hubbard to be the Super Bowl MVP in a world where you've got to hold the Rams down a little bit. Maybe it's a low-scoring game, so Burrow's not throwing four touchdown passes, but there's some – my scenario maybe Evan McPherson's the MVP. There's some kind of, like, 1917 Bengals win, and Hubbard has two-and-a-half sacks, right, and makes a play like he did on Patrick Mahomes. Sam Hubbard, I wasn't sure what kind of NFL player he would be. I didn't – I thought maybe it was a little bit of a reach – for a third round pick for him. It's like, he's a really good athlete, but I just didn't know everything you have to be to be a great defensive end in the NFL. I just had real questions about about whether all that was there. And he's like a really important part of a team in the Super Bowl. So all credit to Sam Hubbard, Von Bell. I'm not surprised at it all. Von Bell is a rock solid. That guy can be a leader on your defense. And then Eli Apple has bounced around and Eli Apple did not grade out very well this year. You look at PFF grades and that kind of thing. And he's, but he played, he started at corner, like every snap for them. So his career hasn't been spectacular, but he's a starting cornerback for a team in the Super Bowl. My pick here would be Hubbard. Steven, who would be your pick? Buckeye most likely be the MVP. It's definitely Hubbard just because he plays the position that can most like change a game because he's an edge rusher. And to your point about Hubbard, is he like, Taking Nick Bosa out of this, because we Bosa is doing what everybody thought the Bosa was going to do. Of the rest of that group from like 2016 to 2017, I think you might be able to make a case that he's like the best of that uh, between him and Tyquan Lewis and, you know, Jalen Holmes oh, yeah. and what they've turned into now, which I don't you probably weren't thinking that at the time. He would probably would have come last if you would have projected that. But I'd say Sam Hubbard. But there is a part of me just save safely for the the entertainment aspect that wants it to be Eli Apple because he is have him and his mother are having way too much fun with this yeah it's one of those things that's like Eli Apple was the 10th pick in the draft and then like wasn't that good and now yeah. he's playing for a Super Bowl team and graded out like as an average player and Eli Apple's like taking 4,000 yes on social media which is fine he's in the Super Bowl he's a starter in the Super Bowl how many people in the world can say that Nathan who would be your pick here so I thought about Hubbard. The thing is, like, yes, I would say an edge rusher gets to affect the game more, but 
there hasn't been a defensive lineman named MVP at all since 1986. That was Richard Dent. It only happened one time before that, the year I was born, 1978, a couple Cowboys guys. So it's just so, so rare that that ends up being the guys that get picked. And even linebackers and defensive backs are, are more likely. And so maybe a defensive end, a defensive lineman is due. Uh, I'm going to go with Von Bell. I think it's, I was going to just toss up between one of the two defensive backs because I think you can get a pick. You can, you know, pick six, something like that that changes the game and, and resonates if it's a low scoring game or comes at a critical time. I think Bell is just better than Apple. So I'll go with Von Bell. And I will wrap it up with this. It's, it's amazing. The combined, from PFF, the combined snaps for the Bengals defense, regular season and postseason. Number one, total snaps for the defense, Von Bell. Number two, Eli Apple. Number four, Sam Hubbard. So three of the four guys who have played the most on defense for a team in the Super Bowl are Ohio State Buckeyes. Jesse Bates, their other safety, is third. PFF grade, this is what I'm talking about a little bit. Von Bell, overall PFF grade, 76.3. It's like really high. It's the second highest grade on the defense. He's, he's an excellent player. Uh, Eli Apple 60.8, which is kind of it's pretty average for a corner, and Sam Hubbard 66.6. All right, good luck to all the Buckeyes in the Super Bowl, and good luck to anybody. There's got to be some Bengals fans who listen to this podcast, so enjoy it. It's super cool. We probably should talk about that a little bit more. Like, what is it like when the college team you really like? has a bunch of players on the pro team you really like, and you're in this situation for anybody who is a fan of the Buckeyes and the Bengals. This is like Shangri-La, even the Joe Burrow thing. It's like, Oh, we lost Joe Burrow. It's like, then we got Joe Burrow. It's like, everybody's happy. So good luck to all the Bengals fans on Sunday. Except Cleveland. They're not very happy. Well, I know, I know, no, no, I know. <laughs> well, no, we just did. I mean, we're doing a whole series at cleveland.com comparing the Browns to the Bengals just because, you know, they're in the same division. They're in the same state. Because, because the Bengals are doing exactly what we all thought the Browns are going to be doing nine months ago. I mean, they lapped them. It's like Literally. The, I, I, when I, I wrote like a 2000 word introductory piece to the series, we're doing stories and podcasts at cleveland.com. And I said, the Browns and the Bengals are on the same track. It's just the, the Browns got lapped because there's a, there are a decent number of similarities in how you do things. And then there just happens to be the fact that the Bengals can throw the ball and the Browns can't and throwing the ball in the NFL kind of seems to be important right now. All right. This is the last one we'll do before our break from the 203 based on the changes throughout the big 10. Who's the program Ohio state has to worry about this year. Who can realistically give them a devastating loss that they're expected to win. Nathan, who is the team to be on the lookout for, for the Buckeyes in the conference? I think it's Michigan. I don't know why it wouldn't be Michigan. I know they lose Hutchinson. I know they lose Ajabo. I know they've had some stuff go kind of sideways on them the last week or so with some personnel things on their coaching staff. But if you think J.J. McCarthy, it could be a thing. If you think Donovan Edwards could be a thing. If you think they've also established uh, that last year kind of opened their eyes to the kind of football they need to play, maybe especially on the defensive side of the ball. I know personnel and having the right guys there is obviously critical, as I always argue for Ohio State. But I don't know. I think you're, you're, you've now – it's the program that has been the one that has been underachieving, and now they've had a taste of it and um, will have maybe renewed confidence when they actually get on the same field as Ohio State. Now that will change, I guess, depending on how the first 11 games of the season go. But that's still uh, the roadblock to me. 
Uh, I know that Penn State is still hanging out there. I know Wisconsin's supposed to be solid this year, and those are teams that um, Ohio State will have to worry about. Uh, but I, I still think that right now, if your main concern is not Michigan, your main concern is misplaced. Steven, what do you think? I feel like Ohio State should have that state saying of somewhere in the woody. If your main concern is at Michigan, your main concern is misplaced. Um, Penn State, it's on the road. It's gonna, it's probably going to be at night. It's going to be a whiteout. Uh, we don't even know who Michigan's new offensive coordinator is yet. I know, like my Weiss has been thrown out there. Uh, Winter's now their defensive coordinator. They, they got a lot to figure out right now, just how things are going to work over there now. And I understand what happened, but I, they got a lot to figure out while Penn State, especially if Drew Aller ends up somehow beating out Sean Clifford for that job, which I know is the same thing we said about J.J. McCarthy and Cade McNamara a year, a year ago. But still, if that happens and then some of those pieces click and it's at home and it's at night with a whiteout, I think that's a more worrisome game, but also because it's earlier. So on the type of teams that maybe – fall short when there's high expectations and rise up when there's low expectations. I'm going to apply this to a player. And I'm curious about Wisconsin this year because Graham Mertz has not been the quarterback that has changed Wisconsin football in the way a lot of people, me included, expected him to be. And now I think he may be officially at the point where everybody's given up on Graham Mertz. And now he's an experienced big 10 quarterback who still has a lot of innate talent. Braylon Allen is a dude at running back. He ran for at least 100 yards in eight of his last nine games last year. They just brought in Bobby Engram from the NFL as a new offensive coordinator. I think that could be the jolt that they need. I don't know. If we were going to do a list of the most important assistant coach hires in the Big Ten this offseason, Jim Knowles is probably number one. I don't have everybody else right in front of me. And Michigan has two huge hires to make. Bobby Engram might be number two. I think that Wisconsin probably needs some more offensive ideas, but they've got a really good running back and they've still have the most talented quarterback they've had in a long time. And a year ago, their defense was as good statistically as anybody in the country short of Georgia. Now they lost a bunch of guys, including their two best linebackers, but they're good at defense. Jim Leonard, Jim Leonard is going to stay at Wisconsin until he gets a big time head coaching job. So he's their version of what Kirby smart was for Nick Saban, not quite at that level, but I think people think that Jim Leonard is definitely one of the 10 best defensive coordinators in college football. So if we get any version of the Mertz that the world has been waiting on, then I think Wisconsin's visit to Ohio stadium could be interesting. And I, we, I say that only because I think it could be different. It could the, the offensive change we've been waiting for maybe will actually be here. Nathan, Graham Mertz, I think, played a little bit better down the stretch in 2021. Wasn't great at the start. We saw that. But juiced up Wisconsin, juiced by Mertz, juiced by Engram, I would be not worried about if I was Ohio State, but I would be slightly on alert for it. What do you think? I'm intrigued, but I'm also still skeptical because it just seems like one of those things that Ohio that Wisconsin gets talked about um, in, in these as, as if it is a thing that it's not. And I just have to see them prove that they are that thing before I start giving them credit for it. I feel like they, they, you know, they have these seasons where, yeah, you, you beat Iowa or whoever, and you beat Minnesota, but you're also still susceptible to really bad losses. 
You're also still usually look like no match when you get on the field with a team from the East and in a championship game or whatever um, that, you know, until that breakthrough comes, I'm, I'm going to still be pretty skeptical. And, but I think you're making a good point that what we think they have needed this whole time uh, was as it is looked at, it was not the quarterback that needed to change. It was sort of the approach that needed to change. And if Ingram can come in and do that and, and bring something else out of Mertz, then it, I think it does get interesting. You've got the running back there. You've got the defensive foundation there. The, the, the tools seem to be there. I just, Michigan, Wisconsin's given us no reason to think that they can put it together. That game feels like it might play out very similar to the regular season 2019 game where it feels closer than like it actually was because I'll say when that game 38 to seven, but there were times in that game, especially in the first half where it felt like it was a lot more competitive than the game actually ended up being. Well, no, I mean, but the whole point is Wisconsin has to be different. They have to be yeah. different than the Wisconsin that Ohio state has run into a thousand times. And so do you believe that the best version of Graham Mertz, if it comes out and the influence of new coordinator, Bobby Engram, can it help Wisconsin be something different than it has been? I don't know. If the answer is no, then I think you're exactly right, Stephen. It's like, well, they're good. They have a good defense. They have a good running back. But good defense, good running back has never beaten Ohio State for Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. They've got to have something more. But I'm just – if we've given up on them having something more, maybe they sneak in the back door and it's like, oh, this is the Graham Mertz that people have been waiting on for three years. All right, we will take a break on Buckeye Talk. We'll be back with more texter questions after this. All right, back on Buckeye Talk, 614-350-3315. Get to ask us some questions. Got some Michigan stuff ahead. Corey Dennis question, defensive question, and a receiver recruiting question from the 734. I know Ohio State has a plethora of receiver talent for years to come, but is a lack of multiple five-star receivers in the past two recruiting classes concerning at all? Chris Olave was an anomaly, not the standard. On that, do you think there will be any drop-off this year, Stephen? Are they not bringing in enough five-star receivers? I don't know if this is the position to say that. I mean, they didn't have any this year, uh, but there's context to why that happened. Uh, you know, Caleb Burton would have been a five-star, but he hurt his knee his junior year, and he's just now getting back to being the best version of himself. Uh, Caleb Brown's, like, really good. I think he probably – it's an argument that – he's one of those guys. He's from the Midwest, Illinois. Uh, there's an argument that could be made if maybe he was from the SEC country, he'd be a little bit higher, but also – I mean, we're coming off a 2021 recruiting class where Ohio State, we're coming off a 2020 recruiting class and a 2021 recruiting class where they just had the number one wide receiver in the country in back-to-back years, along with Jackson Smith and Jigba, along with Marvin Harrison Jr. They're fine. They're doing just fine. They just didn't have one in this recruiting cycle, which, I mean, okay, that's fine. That room, that is probably the most loaded room on the roster in terms of, you know, how deep the talent is, but also how much of it they can actually use this season. And Ryan Hartline will probably have more five stars um, in the 2023 class. Brandon Ennis, the number one wide receiver in the country. He camped here last year, last summer. He's expected to make a visit on April 2nd. And Carnell Tate, who has, you know, his momentum has taken him from Ohio State to Notre Dame. Those have you know, kind of emerged as the top two. He's a five-star as well. So, no. Of anybody we should be worried about, are they, they going to get a five-star recruit? Brian Hartline in that wide receiver room is the last place I'm worried. Recruiting rankings matter. Beating out other top programs for desirable guys, that matters. Nathan, are we at a point, though, with Brian Hartline, where if some year Brian Hartline 
recruited three receivers and they were the number 13, the number 27 and the number 41 receivers in the country. And there weren't, there wasn't a ton of reporting around the fact that Heartline went after the top 12 and lost out on it, that he just, those were the guys he zeroed in on. Would we raise an eyebrow or do the Brian Hartline receiver rankings matter more than the 247 composite receiver rankings? To me, you have to would reach a pretty high bar to be at that point because I do think recruiting rankings matter. But where are we with Hartman's evaluation process? I, I covered a coach once who was fond of saying, you're judged on the players you get, not the players you don't get. And I, so I think, and I always thought that was kind of a, one of those things you say when you lose out on high ranked guys and, and you try to say like, well, we'll, we'll see what happens if, if our lower rank guys beat their hiring guys, then, then who cares? But I, I, I think you're right that I think Brian Hartline probably has bought that benefit of the doubt that his, what he sees is more important than what the consensus recruiting rankings see. I think it's also important to remember to go back to the original question, not getting a five-star, there's, there's a huge gap between five-star and where Chris Olave was ranked. So don't start getting yourself in a position where you poo-poo anybody who isn't a five-star. Like those guys who are, you could be top 50 and not be a five-star, certainly top 100, not a five-star. You can be a really advanced player and not be a five-star so keep that in mind too as you're to all the people out there listening as you're analyzing classes like the five stars are important I think Ohio State has to get that caliber of athlete to compete but because they don't land a five-star in and especially with the context that Steven put out there which which we've talked about before on, on BFF and other places um don't don't assume that if you're not a five-star you're some kind of scrub because you can still be a pretty advanced prospect one thing real quick, for what it's worth, there are six five-star wide receivers in the 2023 recruiting class. Ohio State has offered four of them. And quite frankly, Zachariah Branch, who is the little brother of Zion Branch, he's the number two wide receiver in the country. If Lincoln Riley doesn't leave Oklahoma, he's Ohio State commit right now. So, Because that kid is now interested in, U- in Lincoln Riley because he's at USC. Dreams USC was he and his brother's dream school. So the moment okay. that U- USC became like a thing again, it's like, oh, well, we're going there. They're from Vegas. I almost would be interested in this as a recruiting metric. Hours spent recruiting versus conversion of the player that, hey, we spent this number of hours on this player and we didn't get him because we finished third behind LSU and Clemson versus we spent this many hours on this guy. We spent even more hours on this guy, but we beat Georgia for him. So it was all worth it where, or we spent barely any time on this guy. Cause he was going to be a Buckeye, no matter what, you know, I, that, that that's what matters with all this, the rankings, because the rankings at their best reflect reality. And the reality is you get a sense for how desirable a player is based on how good the programs are that are interested in him. And you can gauge that by how often they visit him. Do they bring him? Does he go to the school? The kid tells you, oh, this coach is calling me all the time. And then that should be reflected in the recruiting ranking. It's not just what the recruiting writer mm-hmm. or evaluators think when they watch a guy at camp. Because in the end, of course, when sometimes when people say, well, who cares what the rankings are? I'm what the coaches think. Well, the rankings should take into account what the coaches think, which is sometimes kids recruit, you know, commit to Ohio State and the ranking goes up. Because, man, mm-hmm. if you're wanted by Ohio State, you're probably pretty good. So 
I just think heart, uh, very few coaches, but Heartline's entered that territory. Larry Johnson's entered that territory. Like to some degree, whatever on the rankings, not all the way. Cause even those guys sometimes have misses Heartline actually Nathan or Steven has Heartline ever stretched for a receiver since he got here that if Heartline said, man, I like nine dudes in this class and I got to get three. I like these nine. And then at some point he winds up having to take his 13th favorite guy, or has he always sort of gotten his target? Yeah. He hasn't been told no a lot without the context being out of, okay, it makes sense why he's been told no. Like Denzel Burke told him no, but that's because he wanted to play cornerback. And it's because because he hasn't really been able to been told no, he's been able to lock in on his guys early and just build. And that's why typically you see the wide receivers and the quarterbacks get locked into a class so quickly over these last couple of cycles. That's not going to happen as quickly this time. So it will be interesting now that we've seen some changes in college football with coaches. Does he hear some no's? And, you know, are we three months before? I, I think the closest he got to hearing a no was Kojo Antwi who it looked like he was coming to Ohio State and then like Georgia kind of nipped it in the bud and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, Ohio State popped back up. I think that's the closest, though, of a situation where it felt like he was getting ready to lose a battle and then he didn't. He ended up not losing it. So, no, this will be the first cycle, I think, where there might be some no's and years past they would have been yeses. And that's just because the room is loaded. All right. People are mad that I mean to Corey Dennis. Uh, question number five from the 208. Primarily for Doug, is there anything Corey Dennis can do to earn your respect while he and Ryan Day work together? Multiple five-star recruits, Heisman winners, multiple high first-round picks. Is it possible he is really good despite how he was hired, or does he have to leave to be good? So the idea that you were not qualified for the job that you were hired to, that sticks with you in my mind for a while. Because at a place like Ohio State, you can be propped up, especially when the head coach is an expert at your position group. So that is going to be difficult for me to overcome. And I, I don't know exactly how I'm going to overcome it. And someone else and someone else asked a similar question. And, and I know that there are times when some of the recruits, some of the quarterback recruits have spoken highly of Corey Dennis and how involved he was in the recruitment and how important he was to it. I know that one of the walk-on quarterbacks left and said nice things about Corey Dennis. I don't know. And I don't want to be unfair, but he wasn't qualified for the job he was hired for. And his father-in-law is the former head coach at Ohio state who hired the guy who then hired him. It is going to take a lot for me to get past that because on some level, what I kind of think is, well, even if he's doing well, a lot of people more qualified who more deserved that opportunity than a guy who had never been a full-time assistant as Urban Meyer's son-in-law didn't even play quarterback all, you know, like Kenny Guyton do this. They'd be saying the exact same thing about Kenny Guyton. Why is it Kenny Guyton, Ohio State's quarterbacks coach instead of Corey Dennis? That's going to be very hard for me to let go of. And so people can call me out on it. It's probably fair to at least question me on it. I would love have an hour long sit down with Corey Dennis and he can tell me when I, if I don't think like, tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me from the horse's mouth, but I'm not gonna change my mind just because CJ Stroud was good this year because I think Ryan day has a whole lot to do with that. So 
I don't know, guys. Nathan, uh, am I? I mean, I'm stubborn. Am I too stubborn about this? Am I wrong about it? Am I wrong? Am I wrong and unfair? Because if I'm evaluating on what Corey Dennis actually is now, regardless of how he got in this position. No, I think this the skepticism is fair. I think it's also been enhanced a little bit by Ohio State sort of hiding him in a way that they don't hide other assistant coaches. Like we didn't talk to Corey Dennis at all this past season. He was never made available the way every other assistant coach was at some point during the season. Um, oh, you had a guy. Sorry. No, I'm just like, I didn't even realize that until you said it. Continue. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got a, a, a quarterback contending for the Heisman Trophy. He's the, he's the leading candidate for the Heisman Trophy going into the regular season finale in some estimations, and you don't talk to the quarterback coach all year. I just think that there are signs that Ohio State puts out there that make you question uh, what, his, what his true impact is. But I think that the, the way players talk about him carry weight, too. So I, I, I probably am, uh, you know, less skeptical of him than, than you are, but I think the, the skepticism is warranted, but he should have gone into that with eyes wide open. He, he had to know how it looked. He had to know how the optics of it were and how unusual it was for someone in his position to be his age, his experience level to be getting a full-time assistant coach job at a place like Ohio state. So I think if you weren't ready to kind of brush that off or absorb it or however you want to say it from the beginning, then, wasn't the job for you anyway. I understand your skepticism. Um, I don't think you're wrong for the reasons you're skeptic. You have skepticism. I think for me, I've just like decided to take the approach of what are my real expectations for what Corey Dennis's job as the quarterback's coach to be in a situation where your head coach is a quarterback's coach. Because quite frankly, Ryan Day could have just done what Lincoln Riley has been doing and not had a quarterback coach if he was just going to be this hands-on with the quarterback anyway. But if he wants to start taking small steps towards CEO mode. And uh, and he kind of learned from having Mike Yurcicher, who was literally a quarterback's coach. And we did talk to him very often, especially in the offseason, um, whether it was spring, fall camp. And then during the season, we would get him in rotation. If he didn't want that and he just wanted somebody in there to, I don't want to say watch over the backup quarterback, but do all the legwork of what comes with being an assistant coach so Ryan Day could just focus on the starting quarterback – then I get why the Corey Dennis model works. Now, obviously, Corey Dennis has extra details of he's the former head coach's son-in-law and all this other stuff that comes into play. But the idea of having a guy who's just, you want a guy in that position, you want a guy in the room, and you just want him to do all the legwork that comes with being the quarterback assistant coach, then like, fine. This is the type of coach that Ryan Day is going to have until he's fully ready to take his hands off of a quarterback and be full CEO mode. So I think, it's correct, Corey Dennis. When you get a job this way, he knows how it looks. And it's not just how it looks, it's how it is. It's like, oh, it looks like you only got this job because Urban Meyer's your father in law. It's like, well, that, that is the only reason. I mean, that's if Urban Meyer wasn't his father in law, he would not have this job. I, you can't, that's true. <laughs> like, that's not like Doug's theory. That's to be fair, true. To be fair, to be fair. Dwayne Haskins like talked him up highly too when like Brian Day wasn't around as much and like I think like you and Bill even did a video about like is Corey Dennis Dwayne Haskins his personal quarterbacks coach basically right. so to be fair yeah, he's he's but yes you're right there that that element that you're the head coach's son-in-law play you can't overlook that so. 
but I also can, I'm putting my opinion out there, new texters, listeners, call me on it. So I'm, a, I'm aware of it. I'm not unaware of it. So I will try to be cognizant and not have blinders on to it. And we will continue to discuss it as it evolves. But I am super interested to see what what is the next thing he does and how he does there. And to some degree, I don't think that's a terrible thing. I won't probably ever be like 100% around until that does happen. Because for the moment, he's like in a, in a, in a situation that is set up to make him look good without us having a full understanding of how much credit he actually deserves for the performance of the players that he coaches. Let's talk about Ryan Day and the defense from the 248. One of the problems I had with Ryan Day last year was he always acted like the defense was someone else's problem, as if he was only responsible for the offense. At the press conference last week, he referred to Jim Knowles as the head coach of the defense, making it seem like he hasn't changed his approach much. Do you think there is a disconnect between Ryan Day and the defense, or am I reading too much into this? That's from BP in Michigan. So we have talked about this. I have a story in the system that's been sitting there for nine days, half done, about this idea. Nathan, we talked about this. I'm in line. We agree with, I think, the premise of the text that it felt like that sometimes. But I don't view this situation as a continuation of that. Or maybe it is a continuation, but it's like an embrace of that rather than it kind of feeling that way. It's more like, yes, this is what it is. And this is how we're going to win. How do you decipher what's different or the same in this situation? So I think what's happening right now to me is a bit of a correction to what was happening before that. I feel like this is a more he's, I think he's taking the right kind of accountability. Now, now he's saying it's my job to go hire the best possible guy to oversee the defense and then give him the full reins to do what he wants to do with the defense. Because before, yes, he had the he was picking the guy in control, but he was also sort of imposing some of his own preferences with the single high defense and all that stuff. And I don't think there was that necessarily that same freedom for somebody to come in and be the executive of the defense or the head coach of the defense, or however you want to say it. I mean, I think being the CEO means that there are executives underneath you, you know, corporate vice presidents or whatever are underneath you that have their own division. That's kind of what Jim Knowles is now. And Ryan Day just happens to also be. The corporate vice president, like in uh, you see Horrible Bosses, the movie Horrible Bosses, where Kevin Spacey gives himself the promotion and just pays himself more that was supposed to go to Jason Bateman or whatever. Not a great analogy, but that's sort of what Ryan Day does with the offense. But you're giving you're putting this corporate vice president in charge of your defensive division. And I think that's just the uh, that's kind of a maturation maybe for Ryan Day and his, you know, going into his fourth season as a head coach to say maybe the previous approach wasn't the right one. And in order to, if, if I'm going to say that the defensive executives, the defensive coaches, defensive coordinator needs to take care of that side of the ball and keep it off of my plate, the minutia off of my plate, then I have to relinquish some of the things that some of the, the preferences, the expectations that I was putting on that and let them truly be the executive that, that handles that. I think it's actually a step towards being a better CEO as opposed to being someone who is like abdicating responsibility. 
I think there were times in the past where maybe it felt like Ryan Day was assigning the responsibility of the defense to somebody else without really empowering anybody to be in charge. I don't want to say blame. Blame's not exactly the right word. But as you were saying, Nathan, it's like they were kind of doing it Ryan Day's way. And then when it didn't work, Ryan Day was like, well, I don't know. I'm not the defensive guy. Like, I'm the offensive guy. And this is leaning in. I think you either had to lean out or lean in. They leaned in. Either spread Ryan Day out more or hire someone who is not his equal, but is the head coach of the defense. So, I don't know. Steven, do you think there's a a distinction to this? or Or is it just a phrase that Ryan Day said and it's really not that different? And that if, if Ryan Day stands up there and acts like he's only the coach of the offense, we'll still have the same issues we did a year ago. I think exactly like he's still just the head coach of the offense, which is exactly why he said head coach of the defense. I just think now he's like actually walking it and not just talking about it, which is fine. That If, you, if this is where you're at as a head coach right now, where you don't really want to have to handle the defense because you want somebody else to be worried about that, fine. But actually do it. Don't just complain about it when things go wrong. And that's hiring Jim Knowles did that, but that's where right now he is still in. Ask me offensive questions. Don't ask me about defense. I do think before it was like, okay, if Ryan day is not the head coach of the defense, who is the head coach of the defense? Yes. Now he said it preemptively. This guy's the head coach of the defense. I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm the head coach of the team and the offense, but I'm two not thirds. the head coach of the defense. Yeah, I am. I'm. T- I'm head coach of two thirds of this program. No, two fourths because Mark Pantoni is the head coach of recruiting. He gave he gave Mark Pantoni a perception title yep. bump as well. That in, I mean, not that we hadn't known that, but the idea of okay, and Mark Pantoni is the head coach of recruiting. I mean, he's the GM of the team. So I I, I think it is at least some distinction that actually does matter. Let's do an injury report thing, Nathan. I'm curious to see where you are on this, because I think it's been a little bumpy for Ohio State at times. From the 3-3-0, do you think players are well-served by the vague injury-slash-status report and the lack of injury updates Ohio State provides these days? If a player is playing below expectations because they are playing hurt and that's not known, it seems like that could have a negative impact both on public perception and with NFL scouts unless that's communicated thoroughly. Nathan, what's your take on this? So NFL scouts, I think, is not as much of an issue because the coaches have direct lines of communication to those sort of personnel. I don't think they're coming to us for that sort of thing. I think they're going to them a lot of times for that sort of thing. Um, When I covered basketball, I would have conversations with NBA scouts around the draft sometimes, and they would ask me, like, hey, have you heard this? Have you heard this? But a lot of times – they are getting like they're having if you have a especially with a coaching staff that you trust you're having some rather blunt conversations i think with them about hey what's this kid about what was the deal with what's his injury history what's his personal history what's going on off the field so i don't really think that's as big of a problem but i do sometimes wonder about the other side of it i mean seven banks was the obvious best example of that this past season with that weird situation with him at the start of the year where Ryan Day is saying like, well, yeah, he was too hurt to play. Well, then, so why wasn't he on the injury report? Like, well, he's not on there anymore. <laughs> That's not really an answer. And it, it, it more so than frustrating for us, I do think that can be frustrating for the player. Because when you say, when someone, when it's like Cody Simon and he's playing with a clear brace all year, that speaks for itself. When it's a less visible injury and then it, you're not 
putting it out there why a guy who's expected to play isn't playing, then it leads to speculation. And I think that the banks, banks and the people around him felt that this year from just things I've heard and, and, and conversations I've had. And I think that that is something that Ryan day, again, as he progresses as a head coach probably has to address a little bit. Like, can you massage this policy so that it is both um, protective of information you don't want to get out, but also doesn't accidentally throw guys under the bus. Cause that's kind of what happened with seven banks a little bit. I thought to start this year. TJ Stroud separated his AC joint and his throwing shoulder. And if we'd have known that to start the season, it completely changes some of the evaluations people had for him and how those first couple of games went. It would have now there is like the decision making. Sure. We still would have judged that because that your shoulder has nothing to do with your decision making that your brain. It's just a whole different conversation, but some of the throws he would be high on or he wouldn't get in the ball there with the zip he needed. We would have understood that. That's why I don't like that in college because Ohio State's not the only program that does this. Now it's actually becoming more of a thing that happens in college football and really college sports in general is where they don't reveal injuries, which to Nathan's point, it makes it unfair for the player because if they're not doing something to the best of their capability, people are just going to think it's because they suck and not because, no, we have an injury that is pre- preventing us from being the best version of ourselves. And if people knew that information, it would change the analysis completely. Yeah, I think that's right. I agree with that. Urban Meyer was much more open about injuries, and I just wish we could talk about it. That's hard, too. When you talk about things, you can figure it out. When it's just a thing on a report and it's about, well, is the person going to play or not? But then you can't really talk it out. It does lead to the vagueness that the texter mentioned. And I don't think it serves the player. And I question, do we think it really helps Ohio State win games that their opponents don't know exactly the health status of some players? I don't know because the best players it's like I'm going to prepare as if he's playing and if he's not then we'll adjust and it to be honest with you what it ends up becoming it comes off as an excuse because what they're going to do is at the end of the season they come out and say oh I was dealing with this that and the third it's like well don't tell us that now now you're just using it as an excuse right again and that doesn't serve the player well either and I yeah and Steven's right like it nobody is like well, I was completely thrown off when the best player on the team who I'd been preparing to play all week didn't play. And then I had to go up against some schlubby guy and I just wasn't predicting. I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting him to be so slow and weak and it just threw my whole game off. Like <laughs> That never happens, right? I think the bigger concern if you're, if you're Ryan Day is, or the coaches who are this secretive is number one, I think sometimes it's just, you want to control as much of the message as you can. Number two, I, I suppose there is, you, you want it, if, if does it open a guy up for guys to come after that injury? Like if you're vague about it and you don't get too specific about what's wrong, like, do you feel like guys are going to get targeted because of that injury? I, I don't know because the NFL is very wide open about injuries. And I don't know that Doug, you could correct me. You're, you're more tied into the, the way that that people think about that league, but like, I don't feel like that's like a, there's like an epidemic of cheap shots and guys going after ankles and stuff i'm sure stuff happens at the bottom of a pile all the time but you know what i'm saying right like i don't feel like that's like an epidemic caused by the injury report right so i i think we eventually will drift towards more transparency and openness with injuries though because of the nfl model and because like why does the nfl have 
a very open injury report policy in part because of gambling interests. And if gambling interests continue to spread across the country, I think that's something that conferences might be more open to, like mandating some sort of injury report because it takes some of the potential um, chicanery out of the process. I do think we could get more open because of that. And because as the players get more empowered with NIL and they have their own voice more to the point we've said, sometimes college programs are still in the mode of protecting players from things they don't need to be protected from when actually it is probably advantageous to the player for people to actually understand what they're going through. And so I think we might be creeping toward that as well. Let's do a Michael Thomas question. Stephen, we'll start with you here from the 304. Michael Thomas was really underused in the JT Barrett offense. If he was coming through now with the Ryan Day offense, would he be in the discussion for the best receiver in Ohio State history? Stephen, you weren't covering the Buckeyes with Michael Thomas, but I know you watched him. What do you think? Yeah, I think one of the like first initial things I wrote when I got here was like the idea of like based off of something Chris Olave was doing was, you know, what if Michael Thomas had this offense? Um, yeah, he'd be in the conversation. I'm trying to figure out where I would rank him right now with uh Garrett and Jackson, just based on because those they have done stuff. I'm not going to throw like the sophomores and freshmen who haven't done anything yet. I think Jackson's one, Michael Thomas is second, and Garrett's third. I think there are Michael Thomas is bigger than Garrett. Yeah. I think there's some comparisons between them in terms of. Sort of like catch range and catch radius, like reliability, but also explosiveness, like true number one receiver traits. Michael Thomas had true number one receiver traits traits across the board when he was here. He did have one of the most unusual things that has ever happened in my time covering the team, which is like a red shirt in the middle of his career Mm -hmm. just to kind of get stuff, get stuff straight that he played in 2012, barely played at all, then redshirted in 2013, like a reset. And then he came out of that, and he was a dude. 54 catches for 799 in 2014, 56 catches for 781 in 2015. I mean, Stephen, if he's playing in this offense, instead of not even 800-yard seasons, those are 1,200 or 1,300-yard seasons. And instead of 50 catches a year, it's more like, probably at least 70 catches 70. a year. I mean, maybe even even with a bevy of guides. He was just a dude, and I can remember walking off, I think after pro day. Eh, where was it? Walking with Michael Thomas one day and talking to him about the idea of, man, you didn't get the ball enough. And him sort of I mean, like, yeah, knowing that. And then just us talking about like, well, man, you never complained. And he was like, yeah, I know. Like, he, he knew it. He didn't not know. But the one, and the one thing in the end that happened, and it's unfortunate for Browns fans, is if Michael Thomas had been used the way that Garrett Wilson has been used or the Jackson Smith and Jigba has been used and will be used in the Ohio State offense, I'm pretty sure Michael Thomas would have been the first receiver drafted in 2016. The Browns took the first receiver that year. They took Corey Coleman. Michael Thomas fell in the second round. It's just, and I talked about it a lot. Of all the things I've been wrong about, that was one of the things I was right about. Like, you just, people didn't know. And I do I think every now and then, as someone who has watched every snap of a player's career, we do know more about the guys we cover than an NFL front office who is interviewing a guy and looking at stuff and looking at film. I was sure that Michael Thomas was going to be a star. Everybody who covered Ohio state was sure that Michael Thomas was going to be a star. Ari was sure. Landis was sure. Everybody was sure. And we were all right. Cause we knew 
we knew. So, Stephen, I think even Ohio State fans knew it. I think there is a world where he didn't make our Mount Rushmore for receivers because a guy who never even had 100, 800 receiving yards in the season, how's he going to be on the Mount Rushmore? I think he would at least be that if he played in the Ryan Day offense. Yeah, I think Garrett's stat line this past year is a good baseline. 70 catches, 1,000 yards, and 12 t- – I mean, 70,010. I think that's a good baseline to say where he'd have been at because the, if he was getting catches like touches like that, the room would have been better. So obviously somebody else would have been along with him, but 70 catches, thousand yards, 10 touchdowns. I think that's a good base for where his career could have been. Nathan, you got uh, anything you want to add on Michael Thomas? No, not really. I think I, I kind of advocated him for him a little bit when we did rush more, just because I think sometimes you can be so great in the NFL that it, People for people on the outside, like they don't know that he didn't catch that much at Ohio State. So it almost like elevates your college career because you're so great in the NFL. Um, It would be interesting. We should just go back and sort of like you'd have to prorate the production a little bit. Right. Because they throw the ball more overall than they did back then, not just whether they're Mm -hmm. throwing to him or not. So like if you prorated that, what would his numbers have been just prorated to the how much they throw the ball now? We'll text that. We'll do that and we'll text that out in the next couple of days. Nice. 614-350-3315. Last break. We'll be back. A couple of Michigan questions next on Buckeye Talk. Doug Nathan Steven. Question about Michigan, Nathan, from the seven uh, from the 937. Does Michigan ever get back to the playoff under Jim Harbaugh? Nathan, or will Jim Harbaugh retire from Michigan with one? Playoff appearance. This is I love questions like this because you've got to factor in how long do you think Jim Harbaugh will be there, and then also how good do you think they're going to be under him? Well, I think the longevity is the most crucial thing, almost because if you if he waits long enough, they won't have to be as good to make the playoff because there'll be a bigger playoff. True. So I would say yes. I would say yes. They go back to the playoff at some point with Jim Harbaugh. Because most annoying answer you could give to that. He'll question. stick around. And he'll be around long enough to get the benefit from the eight team or 12 team era. Right. But, but because, and I, I guess if you were pinning me down, do I think he'll be, do you think he'll go in the next two years? No, because I think Ohio state is going to put up a wall here these next two years. I'll be curious. The, the thing that we have talked about sometimes about like the path for two big 10 teams, the path was there for two big 10 teams last year. If Ohio state hadn't lost to Oregon. So I'll be curious about can Michigan before we get, once we get to eight or 12, Michigan's path is win every game except the Ohio State game, and then you're in. Like, it's okay. You don't have to beat Ohio State to make the playoff. Is there a path for that in the four-team world? Like, you'd need a little help, but maybe? So where are you on this, Stephen? Do you think Harbaugh gets back to the playoff? No, I don't think he makes another four-team playoff. And it's it, some a lot of it is based on Ohio State. I don't think they're going to fall off a cliff the way they did this past year. But then also, let's just say the four-team playoff does last another five years because the you know the committee's moving slow as can be and keeps pushing stuff back. I might, if I was a betting man, I would put money on Penn State getting there in a year where Ohio State had another fall off than I would Michigan right now. Yeah, that's that's not a terrible bet. That's a Drew Aller bet. Yes, I, I think I just think he's better. And that's basically a who do you think is better, Drew Aller or JJ McCarthy? And I think Penn State's back to back, what they're doing in his 2022 class and what they've started building in his 2023, plus the talent he is, is better than what Michigan's done with Donovan Edwards and JJ McCarthy. 
we are going to get a good read on Michigan again, losing two coordinators. You know, they're promote Matt Weiss and Sharon Moore to be co-offensive coordinators. Now that Josh Gaddis left, I do, I do think Harbaugh's built a good staff in the last couple of years. And that's a really big part, especially there's your initial staff, which is all the dudes you had in your pocket for when you got a head coaching job, but to be able to not retain guys, but when guys leave, replace them and not have huge drop-offs is a, I think an incredibly important part of being a head coach. And I think he might be on track to do that. So it'll be very curious. They're not going to have an Aiden Aiden Hutchinson every year, but it will be very interesting if this past season is somewhat indicative of what they are now, like well-coached. They know how they want to play. They get some good talent in there. I mean, but again, Michigan might have three defensive players picked in the first round of this draft. So that's not the world they're going to be living in all the time. But I do think there's probably more upside for their offense because all their receivers got hurt and weren't that good this year. So anyway, I will say yes. I think he will make the playoff again. And I don't even necessarily need it to be in an 8-12 to team world. I think they're very well could be a year where Ohio State and Michigan both make the playoff in a 14 world because we've been pretty close to it a couple times and you just need a little extra help threading the needle and they both have to get to that game undefeated. And and what has happened is the times they've tried to thread the needle to make it happen, that didn't happen. I think we could see that world. All right, last question about Michigan. This is from Jared and Springboro from the 937. If Ohio State puts a beating on Michigan next year and the Wolverines finish with four losses, how much favor does Jim Harbaugh lose with the administration and fan base due to how this offseason played out? So winning cures everything, Nathan. But if they don't have a huge winning season, if they're that exact season, they get drummed by Ohio State, they're eight and four. Does all this stuff come back on them? Because I'll be curious how long it lingers again if they end up reshaping the staff they haven't hired a defensive coordinator as far as we know yet, but they reshaped it. Actually, they, they have. They got the Vanderbilt Jesse guy. Minter. They have an yeah, official. Yeah. They, so they have. They're reshaping it. They're reshaping it as we go. Can, will it get wiped or would eight and four bubble up some of the stuff that people felt with Jim Harbaugh while he was having a dance with the NFL, Nathan? I don't think they can regress. And them going 10 and two would not be regression. I think, but going eight and four really looks like you have fallen back to that previous plateau that you were on, that previous ceiling that you were seemed stuck under in a lot of ways. And I think that if they were to fall all the way back to that level, especially when you start looking at their schedule, because that to lose four games, they're not going to lose in the non-conference. It's Colorado State, Hawaii, and Connecticut. So, you know, that means you're either losing to – you know, you've got Iowa, Indiana, Rutgers, and Ohio State on the road. And then you've got Maryland, Penn State, Michigan State, Nebraska, and Illinois at home. Like, so if you're losing four games out of that cluster, things really did go wrong. It means you probably either stuck too long with McNamara or, or J.J. McCarthy didn't progress. It means that your defensive coordinator that you hired maybe didn't uh Jesse Mentor maybe didn't follow the enough of the McDonald blueprint, which I think is kind of important that this guy mentor needs to come in and obviously be his own man, but look at what worked under the previous guy. What lessons can you take from that and apply? Um, if, if that comes in and goes completely awry, 
Like, I don't think eight and four, I think eight and four would be a problem. I do think people would think you blew the momentum. Yes. By being selfish and, and looking out for yourself. I, I do think that perception is sitting there with a season but, that might otherwise be understandable. In, as you just said, Nathan, and we've got some other texters who are sort of like mocking Michigan's schedule this year, that again, there's no big dog. They played Washington last year. I'm not sure exactly why their schedule worked out this way, that there's not a true national power in that group. But I don't know, Stephen, I'll be curious how on edge the Michigan fan base is through the offseason and through the first part of the year because of this stuff. When it should be all sunshine and rainbows, they should be dancing in the streets. Hey, they should be sticking it to Ohio State, making fun of Ohio State on social media every day, flying their maize and blue flags, get the M out. This is as good as it gets for Michigan football in the last 20 years. And if they feel like they can't fully embrace that because now they're worried about some stuff and they blame Harbaugh for that. If it dips, I think they are going to blame him. You use the word, the phrase I was going to use blew the momentum. Um, you're saying eight and four. What if they lose to Penn state, Michigan state and Ohio state and they just go nine and three. And it's kind of like, yeah, as a fan, you're like, well, we're back. We had a one good fun year because Ohio state was young and it snowed and we had all these guys come back because of, you know, they got the COVID year. And so we got to jump up and beat them and dominate them. And Aiden Hutchinson's awesome, but they're gone now. And now we're back to getting our butts kicked by Ohio state and we can't win the other big games. So like, I mean, that is not crazy. And I think that's what fans are, what that fan base is worried about is those three games. Forget, forget the Iowa, the crossover games and the fact that their non-conference schedule sucks. It's the fact that like Mel Tucker seems to have, you know, tapped into something there. Penn State's always good, usually, and Ohio State's Ohio State. And I, I wonder, say, I, go ahead, Nathan. Well, the, the only thing, though, that his dalliance with the NFL seems to have cost them so far is Josh Gaddis, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So if your offense doesn't really fall off a cliff, I mean, in some ways that doesn't seem like that hard of a problem to fix. Like you've got the you've got some talent here. You've got some pieces of talent on offense, and if you can just weather the storm, you've got the two guys that you you're turning this over to. If they can just keep the ship right on offense, your offense doesn't fall off. Then it's hard. It's hard. I'm just saying, whatever happens this year, it'll be harder to draw the line between Harbaugh looking at the NFL and whatever happens this year, as long as the offense does what it's supposed to. Except on defense, you lost your Chase Young, your Jeff Okuda, and your Jordan Fuller. Yeah, but it had nothing to well, do they with didn't. Him. Right, but not because Jim Harbaugh mucked around. Right, game. right. Yeah, that's fair. But it's like they're, they're not going to be as good defensively, and it's a new no. defensive coordinator. So the, I'm just I'm comparing it to the Ohio State situation where it's that, that concept of, you know. But that's also why he has like a built-in lower floor in some ways. Fair. Because you just lost McDonald, you lost Hutchinson, you lost uh, – Ojabo, Ojabo. all these Daxton Hill, hugely integral Daxton Hill. Yeah, you lost this like incredibly important pieces of why that team made the playoff. So I I think it's reasonable to expect some regression. I just feel like you can't, like you guys are saying, you can't, I don't think, stumble all the way back to like not, not winning any of the biggest games on your schedule, looking really overmatched against Ohio State. Like those sorts of things can't really come back in. You've got to find a way to not slide all the way back to that point. I just wonder how much of the benefit of the doubt of reasonable has he, did he punt? 
by by mm-hmm. having January work out the way it did. That I think people along the way, I think some portion of the Michigan fan base along the way, even while Ohio- Michigan wasn't winning any big games, I think Jim Harbaugh retained the benefit of the doubt because he had come back to restore the pride of Bo's program because he was a Wolverine through and through because he had turned down chances in the NFL and he was here and yeah, it wasn't perfect right away, but he was still their guy. And now he cracked the door on, well, I mean, I'm still your guy, but the Vikings would offer it. I would have been gone. And I just, I wonder how much he lost in that. And again, as we said, not to blame him, but it's just how it works. All right. That's it for this Buckeye talk. We're going to keep doing podcasts and we hope that you keep listening to them. Readcleveland.com slash OSU. Try the Texas 614-350-3315. Enjoy the Super Bowl this weekend. I have a feeling next week we'll talk a little bit about it, especially if some of the Ohio State guys um, do some interesting things in that game. For Stephen and Nathan, I'm Doug. And that was Buckeye Talk. Buckeye Talk.